Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm your host, Ian Bukta, and we're back with another interview from our 40 Under 40 series, where we interview some of the DeBeaumont Foundation's 40 Under 40 in public health around the country. This week, I sat down with William Moore, a health educator with the St. Paul Ramsey County Health Department in Minnesota. William Moore's work focuses on engaging men into family care to improve outcomes of the entire family. We sat down and talked about his program's Club Dad and Doula Dads, the importance of public health messaging, and the systems of public health and opportunities afforded to communities in general. So one last thing before we get into the interview. We talk a lot about the concept of birth equity, and I know that not everyone knows what that is, so I'm going to define it for you before we go into the interview. Birth equity is the ability for everyone, regardless of their economic status, social status, or race, to have healthy pregnancies, healthy births, and healthy babies. All right, let's go into the interview. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day today to come chat with us. Do you mind stating your name, organization, and position? Yeah, my name is William Moore. I am a health educator and certified perinatal educator with St. Paul Ramsey County Public Health in the state of Minnesota. You were recently named as part of the DeBeaumont 40 Under 40. Can you briefly describe the work that contributed to this amazing honor? So it, it would be the work that I'm doing in child maternal health, specifically addressing the disparities and the infant mortality rate here in Ramsey County, where I work, and then also the uh, maternal death rate. And that, I believe that the work that we're trying to do in regards to addressing that is some pretty innovative work. It's some out-of-the-box thinking, and I think that that's what really kind of caught the eye of the Development Foundation. How did you first get involved with this project, and how did you kind of come up with what you were working on? Okay, so initially I kind of got involved with this project. I was asked to help co-facilitate a monthly men's group that goes, runs concurrently or during the same time as a women's group. It's called Club Dad. And the point of this monthly meeting is just a safe space for men and fathers to kind of get together and talk. Talk about issues they may be facing in the relationship as parents you know, di- learn different life skills, how to get gainful employment, some of their education. And the conversation kind of came up that there wasn't enough male representation in the BEC meetings. Now, BEC stands for Birth Equity Community Council. Essentially what it is, what I like to describe to people at, uh, about it is, it's a way of like crowdsourcing information to address birth equity issues in the county. And so there are public health professionals, there are professionals who don't work in public health, they're just community members, regular everyday citizens. We get together do, you know, is talk about the different birth equity uh, issues that face the county through our respective lens, because, you know, we come from all different areas and walks of life, professions, so it, it kind of, it looks differently for all of us. And then we kind of come up with an action plan, right? So different things that we want to address, and we kind of drop a plan of how to address that. So I was asked to kind of, you know, to, to join uh, Beck and to see if I could also get some of the men from Club, Club Dad to kind of come visit and attend the meetings just so we can have some male representation because it was very heavily female dominated. And as you, over the course of this interview, you'll kind of see that be like a common theme of uh, why the work that I am doing I think is important and why we kind of, you know, went this route. And so as I was attending one of the Beck meetings, um, like I said, the key things we wanted to address was the infant mortality rate, the disparities in it. Here, for every white baby that dies before the age of one, four black or brown babies pass away. And nationally, African-American women die at a rate of 243% more likely than white women during childbirth. So we were really looking at ways to kind of address that. How can we make an impact on that? 
And so as everybody's kind of putting their head together and thinking about it, you know, we all started to notice, like, if we asked, we started to ask people about what the different resources out there for women and children, especially the public health professionals, we could go on forever, you know, rattling out different uh, resources and things that are available and tools that are available for, you know, women and children in use. But if we asked everybody to address or name resources that are available for men or fathers, nobody could really name anything. And we start to see that as a common thing and as a problem, because there's a common saying that I'm sure you're aware of and that we, you know, we talked about in back meeting that, you know, if it takes a village to raise a child. But if we know that it takes a village to raise a child, but we're only equipping half that village to do so, then we're in fact working with a broken model, right? Yeah. And smart as, you know, all these different professionals are and smart as everybody, you know, is, it's no wonder that we're, you know, every year, year after year, we're pouring funds and resources into try to address these issues. But things aren't necessarily improving because we're working with a broken model. And so the idea came about to, why don't we come up with some resources for fathers? Because, for instance, out of the few resources that are out there for fathers, you know, it's just not communicated very well. Like, for instance, WIC, Women, Infant, and Children. Men can actually take advantage of that and use that. (laughs) But but it's built into the name of women, infants, and children. So men, a lot of men don't even know. There's a lot of public health professionals that don't even know men can take advantage of that and use it. And there are a lot of single fathers out there. And so we needed to try to kind of fix it at its core, even fix it with the language. And so we started to think, well, if we need help with, you know, addressing this, you know, this, this, these infant mortality rates, we're talking about breastfeeding, you know, improving breastfeeding, number, improving safe sleep messaging, improving overall involvement with fathers in the birth process, advocating for women. Why don't the idea came about through a collaboration with a couple of or a couple of other organizations that are part of Beck, mainly the African American Babies Coalition, St. Paul Ramsey County Public Health, and there, and and, and um, all that the Cultural Wellness Center. Yeah, we there was an organization called an initiative called. Integrated Care for High-Risk Pregnancies. We call it ITER. Public Health, we love our acronyms for everything. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes we, you know, we get to, you know, get get it all confused. But through that grant, the idea was decided, why don't we train men to become doulas and lactation educators? And to be honest with you, once I feel going to more explanation to it, it's, it's, it's perfect. Because one of the things that, so let's look at breastfeeding. One of the number one reasons, or the number one reason that women have trouble breastfeeding or stop breastfeeding or anything like that is a lack of support. Who better to support them than the father, the child, or their partner, or who helped make that child? Without, you know, the, the ridiculous numbers, such as 243% of African-American women dying during child, you know, that speaks to me of, you know, we have to start using terms and referring to structural racism within our healthcare system. And it's been happening for decades. And, and strangely enough, it's only become more of a mainstream thing and people have started to pay more attention to it since Serena Williams became vocal about her instances with medical professionals not really listening to her and her dealing with blood clots. Well, we're seeing this thing, you're seeing this happen all the time. And with a number as high as 243%, I mean, listen, if we were going to say 2.43%, we could say, ah, that's an anomaly. That's an incident somewhere. If we're going to say 24.3% difference, we'd say, you know what, that's getting kind of high, but maybe we could chalk it up to social determinants of health, things of that nature. And we know how that, you know, us, those of us in the public health field know how that can affect different groups of people depending on where they reside and, and things like that. But when we say 243%, that's bordering. That's, I mean, I start to throw around terms like medical malpractice with that. That's extremely high. And it's, and it, and it's proof that women aren't being listened to. 
when they're, you know, when they know their bodies, when things are bothering them, when things are hurting them, doctors aren't listening to them. And Serena Williams' interview, like, confirmed that. And so we decided if we start bringing men and making them more a part of this process, we start equipping the other half of the village. Not only do they have their voice and able to advocate for themselves, but they can also advocate for these mothers and advocate for these babies during the process. And that is hugely important because as we started to really ask questions and do our homework and do our research about it, we see that, you know, culturally speaking, you know, as a society as, as a whole, men are often left out of the birth process. We're kind of only seen as the financial component or the disciplinarian for the child. But it takes two to make a child. And birth work, I've had to tell people a lot, especially since I've become a doula. You know, people, you know, look at me kind of odd and go, well, isn't that women's work? Well, it's like, hey, no, birth work is family work. That's not women's work. And the more that we can do to kind of, you know, break this narrative and change this thought process around, taking care of your family as being just work for the woman, but work for everybody, the more we can start seeing ourselves alleviating the pressures and the, and the burdens that a lot of mothers have to carry out there, feeling like they need to do everything. And the more confidence we give fathers to let them know that they are a more integral part of a child's life, especially in early childhood development, to, to make sure you know, children are, are reaching all those early childhood development benchmarks. As you mentioned a little bit ago with public health, you know, you hear of all the, you mentioned the fact that you hear about maternal resources, but you very rarely hear about paternal. And that was something that when I saw your work was just so cool because thinking about both parents with it, the fact that we have messaging that kind of is pushing. Counterproductive. It's, yeah, yeah, it's very counteractive to it because like I said, we, we know that, you know, in early childhood development for children to reach, to reach all those early childhood benchmarks, you need both parents to be actively involved. They don't have to be together, but they both need to be actively involved. And so why don't we start pulling dad in there? You know what I mean? There's even studies out there, and I think, I think the where do I read it? I, hopefully I don't misquote it, but it was like Sweden, that the way is in which children, you know, their language is developed, that they learn different things from their fathers versus their mothers. Like huh. when it comes to mothers, that they're, the way that they, their, their language develops and grows is that from mom, they learn better when mom is doing more like labeling and directing. But when dad, they learn better and they, their language develops when it comes to mimicry. And so just right there, it shows you that there's a complete, you know, like both parents are needed and for a healthy development of the child. And so we've really got to start, you know, changing the narrative, even in our language. You know, even when I'm working with families around this, I make sure to include both parents. I make sure to, you know, include birth partners. It's never just, oh, you know, when mom does this or like I said, I always try to refer to my work as not just maternal or child, child development work, but family work, because it truly does take a family. So you, you got into this a little bit already, but what kind of messaging do you use to get dads excited about breastfeeding and childcare? Well, the first thing that we really have to do is get them comfortable with it, right? So I have to really change their view of it. And a lot of times what I usually use do is society plays a big role in making dad feel like he doesn't have a part of it. Not only society, but also friends and family members, right? So for instance, there are, I, I've worked with clients, they're excited about having a new, new little one come into to the world and they're ready to do this. Like, yeah, we're having a baby and we're pregnant. And then there's a family member, or maybe it's mom, or maybe it's a friend, but somebody goes, you aren't doing anything. You're the one, your, your feet aren't swelling, your ankles aren't swelling, your back is hurt. You aren't doing anything. Well, what we're doing is we're sending like subliminal messaging or we're sending like subconscious messages or not even subconscious really in a way, like very direct messaging. 
two men over the course of these, in this nine-month period that they're not of any use to the process. I've even gotten comments from men where some of them go to their, you know, their prenatal care visits, right? And they talk about how doctors talk over them, they talk through them, they talk around them, but they never even talk to them. So they're made to f- they feel like they're invalidated. They're made to feel like they're invisible. I even had one client that talked about being at the birth of his child and asking the doctor's question, and the doctor didn't want him to ask him. And so he kept asking, the doctor actually had him removed from the delivery room. Wow. Right? So what does that do? So what does that do to men? Those type of things do to men when baby is here. If you've been conditioned for nine months that you don't matter when the child is here, you subconsciously play that out, right? And so some of the things I try to do is to break, break those narratives down. I give, them, I give them all the information and education they need. Like, for instance, that as a father, even being around mom and not even doing anything, just being around mom, increases her levels of prolactin. So she can produce up to 20% more breast milk just from him being present. Wow. Right? And give, you know, letting him know information about, for instance, that the number one reason that a lot of moms do stop breastfeeding is because of lack of support. And lack of support is specifically from the fathers or family members. Teaching them that, you know, breasts aren't to be like over-sexualized, that, that a woman's body is, you know, breasts in particular are, are like a source of nourishment for their children. As far as that milk, that breast milk is genetically coded specifically for that child to help them fight off all type of sicknesses, bacteria. They're giving them all those valuable antibodies. And even after the first year, more antibodies are produced. It's, it's amazing how it works because why is that important? Well, after about a year, when babies are crawling, they're exposed to more germs, right? They're, you know, they got their little hands, grubby hands everywhere. They're putting their hands in the mouth. The body, the human body knows these things. So mom's breast milk is producing more antibodies to be able to fight these things off. And so when I'm able to give them data like that, show them why their presence is so much more important. Show them different things like, and and tell them different things like, you know, it's okay when you don't feel like the baby is connecting to you when the baby's first born. It takes time to develop that. Baby's been in, you know, mom's womb for nine months. Ironically enough, that also says it takes about nine months for the baby to make that same type of connection after birth with dad. And so when they're starting to hear all these different things, it all starts to come together and make sense. And when I'm able to t- you know, talk to them, especially when it comes to uh, their masculinity or manhood, because some feel like their masculinity or manhood is being tested because they're doing quote unquote women's work, right? One thing that I always, it's not even a trick, but it's a, it's a way of talking to, to a lot of men who have that approach that really seems to register. And what I do with that or how I talk to them is if you believe yourself to be a man and your perception of what a man is, is to be able to do whatever you want, say whatever you want, and just everything is about, you know, everything about you. A, where did that perception or where did that direction come from? Because you had to pick it up from somewhere, right? And if you are, are supposed to be able to do whatever you want and say whatever you want and behave however you want, why are you letting somebody else's perception of manhood dictate how you behave in your community and your household, right? So it's a little bit of psychology there. It's like you say that you're this individual who has all this autonomy over yourself, but you're allowing somebody else's perceptions. You're allowing somebody else's, I guess, guidelines or principles about how to live life, which in many cases, I've challenged them to look at those individuals who have laid that blueprint down for them. In many cases, those people aren't even living up to that same standard themselves. So why would you subject yourself to that, right? Once you, once you say, once you begin to use language like that, once you get to them to begin thinking about those things, you really start to see their brain churning. You really start to see them now beginning to kind of break away and think for themselves. Now, it's not instantaneous. It's a growth process, right? Yeah. But you see it start to happen. 
once and, and I'm a firm believer that once you get them to be just receptive to just a little bit, right? Once you get those doors just open just a little bit, you're in there. Because no matter what, no matter what, if you agree with their approach, you agree with their tactics, whether they're inexperienced, whether they're experienced, both parents always want what's best for their child. Now, they may not necessarily know how to get there and they need guidance, but they all want, want, want what's best for their child. And if you can show them a different route or an avenue that they think could possibly be better for their child, they're going to be open and receptive to that. That's amazing and just really effective public health messaging, something that we've been talking with the different leaders of the 40 under 40 is really how do you get your messaging to people? Because I think that's where a lot of our fight in public health is right now. And it sounds like you have a very convincing one. Um, yeah. Well, you know, narrative and, and language is everything, right? You narrative is used to shape all of our policy narrative or perception is used. We begin to use that as kids, right? When you want something at the store and your parents don't want to get it for you, what do you do? You come up with a narrative or a story of why they need to get it for you. Now, you might not always be successful, but you always have your angle. You always have your, your, your message prepared for why they need to buy you this toy or these pair of shoes or whatever that you wanted. And so it's natural. It's about crafting the right, using it in the most effective way so that we can serve the community members that we're charged to serve in the, most, uh, the best possible way that we can. So we're going to change directions a little bit. What first prompted you to get into public health? Oh, my gosh. So that was a very, ah, that's a very roundabout story. I mean, and to be honest with you, if you'd asked me four years ago if I'd be working in public health, I actually probably would have asked you what exactly it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I got my leg into public health actually doing outreach programming, working for nonprofits. I was working for a pretty prominent nonprofit here in Twin Cities area who was kind of changing a lot of their standards with the way they work with youth and families to be geared more towards healthy eating and physical activity. And as they were starting to make this change, the program that I was that I was running became one of the first programs to kind of try these different standards and tactics out. Well, I managed to implement them pretty efficiently in the program that I was running. And so from that point forward, I was asked to kind of go and speak statewide about how I was able to kind of implement these health eating physical activity standards and the most effective way with this group of, you know, young adults and youth that I was working with. I guess I did, must have did a pretty good job because that lined up kind of parlaying itself and an opportunity to go lobby in D.C. during National Advocacy Days on behalf of the nonprofit I was working for, for four pieces of legislation that happened to be public health legislation. There, I kind of you know, got to use use my experience and, and the knowledge that I gained in college, like political science, kind of running a gamut, working with our different representatives and congressmen and women and talking to everybody. And that was, a you know, an amazing rush. And uh, by the time that I finished with that week-long trip, I had gotten back. I must have been pretty convincing because one of our reps actually came and did a site visit. I mean, that's something that she had never done before. <laughs> so that our, the nonprofit I was working for wind up doing a partnership with a local public health agency, opening up a position, um, essentially doing the work that I'd have been doing on behalf of the nonprofit. So I was asked, I was tapped to be that person to kind of work on collaboration with the public health department and work on, you know, work in conjunction with this specific grant to kind of es essentially set up a sustainable infrastructure around health eating and physical activity statewide. And that's how I wound up in public health. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's an awesome story. So it sounds like you've been working in the public health a little bit without kind of knowing, but then you transitioned fully into it. So what advice would you give to someone just starting their career, whether they know it or they don't, that they're in public health? Get out and meet as many people as possible. Get out and network, learn absolutely everything you can. Because one thing that they'll learn is public health encompasses so many different things. And especially as you get in and you start to learn about the, you know, the social determinants of health, right? Like these indirect things that affect how we become healthy individuals, like access to healthy foods, you know, adequate transportation, access to proper health care, having sufficient wages, stress management, all those different things. You really start to understand how public health really is more of a, a holistic approach to life, how everything is really intertwined and connected. And the reason for the networking is because when you work for government institutions or, or sometimes, you know, maybe not even just a government institution, but any like larger corporation or anything like that, whether it be public or private, we can become very siloed in our work, right? So we're all running off very limited resources and we're trying to do the most work possible with all these limited resources. But very few of us recognize, because of the siloing in our respective departments and positions, that often there's somebody, maybe not even a mile down, that works at a different organization, right? Whose strength is actually your weakness. So when you're able to network and form these partnerships, you're able to really leverage each other's strength to meet strengths to meet the greater need of the community that you're both working in, that you're both trying to work. And I think that that's what we were able to do with me becoming a trained doula and lactation educator and also being able to get several other men trained to do so, to do this work out in the community and work with men so that they can be better partners to their significant others and the women in these communities, but also strengthen and give more confidence to other men in these communities. That was made possible because of networking and partnerships outside of just public health, outside of the specific public health department that I work with. We were able to leverage the knowledge, the, you know, the, the different ideas, the different financial surplus of everybody around to really do something, do an innovative project and make a significant impact uh, in the community. So it's interesting how you're able to, you know, use your network in order to find the time and the funds, which are often so, you know, just so hard to get to in public health. Now, we're going to go into a magical world. If you didn't have any time constraints, any resource constraints, or any funding constraints, what would be the one thing that you would change in public health? The one thing that I would change in public health? So there's a lot, but this one thing I'm going to say, I don't know if it'll be on a lot of people's radar. It would actually get in the word out about what public health actually is. There are so many kids, young adults, even adults out there working in the community that have absolutely no idea what public health is. And once they knew that what public health is, that it has, it has an impact on absolutely every facet of their life, I think people would pay a lot more, more attention to it. And we'd also start to attract a lot more innovative talent, right? Because this world is full, full, like chock full of brilliant thinkers, absolute geniuses out there. Who There's some kid out there right now, probably eight, nine years old, who can probably solve every, has a potential to solve every, you know, infrastructure issue or transportation issue across this entire country, right? Yeah. We could use that kid to get access to, to help people get access to healthy food, um, you know, transportation, efficient transportation to, to, to great jobs, pay them better, all these things. And has no idea what public health is <laughs> and has no idea that he would have an amazing, he or she would have an amazing career in public health. 
I think if I had that, I would I would educate people about what public health is, but not only create the opportunity for them to get in public health, but teach them how to take advantage of the opportunity. Because it's not one thing when you're doing any type of community work or, or social justice work or, or public service job. It's it's one thing to create an opportunity, but how good is that opportunity that we've created if we're putting this opportunity out in front of people who've never been presented with before, right? They've never, they've never encountered it and they don't know how to take an op- advantage of it. So in that respect, if we've given people opportunities, but we haven't taught them how to take advantage of it, they would really help them at all? No, we need to not only provide these opportunities, but teach people how to take advantage of these opportunities. Providing opportunities, but not teaching people how to take advantage of them is like me giving a car to a 13 year old, giving them the expenses, he or she the expenses as far as, you know, you got to f- figure out how to pay the insurance, pay the gas, all that type of stuff. But I never taught that child how to drive it. What yeah. good is the car then? And so that's how we need to begin to look at a lot of the opportunities that we're creating out there. Yep, we're creating opportunities. We're pouring a lot of resources and funding in the communities about that. But did we teach people how to take advantage of them? If we have not done that, if we not, have not done A and B, then we cannot say that we have adequately done a good job of creating opportunity for people. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting take. I don't think anyone's gone that route yet with this question, but I, I like it. And I think that you're right. The more we can get people to know what, what the heck we're doing, uh, the better we're going to be. So I'm going to harken back to a previous series that we've done here on From the Front Row. We talked a lot about people's location and zip code, thinking about social determinants of health and specifically calling out people, like where people are, their place. Mm-hmm. Can, you talk, can you talk a little bit about how place matters in the work that you do? Oh, yeah. If you can, somebody can give you their zip code, you can almost determine how healthy they are compared to everybody else around them. Even though there is supposedly no segregation in America, we are still very much heavily segregated. Not only by, you know, by race, but income has a great deal to do with it. When you look at the zip codes of some very, you know, underprivileged areas, you start to see things happen like not very good representation when it comes to uh, legislation and politics, you know, as far as politics concerned. You start to see things happen such as maybe incinerators being put in these areas. You start to see maybe the lack of grocery stores and uh, access to fresh produce and fresh food in these areas. I mean, I think that I'm pretty sure that there's a study out there that even says you can determine the wealth of a community by how many grocery stores it has per square mile, right? Interesting. I forgot the, the, the exact study, but you can look it up and find it. And so I can even do something like that. I can look at a zip code, you know, punch and try to find how many grocery stores in there. And without looking at anything else, I can tell you whether or not they are a high or low income area. Wow. And generally, when you're dealing with areas that have, you know, low income, you, you, you we're talking about very few resources. And when you have very few resources, you have low health. People lack the ability to be able to take care of themselves. I mean, let's be honest. When we're kids and people ask us what we want to be when we grow up, people are talking about we want to be cops. We want to be astronauts. We want to be doctors. We want to be football players. We want to be basketball players. Nobody's saying that I want to be broke. I want to be addicted to something. I want to be obese. I want to have a chronic disease. I want to be sick. I want to be ill. Nobody says those things. But it happens. And it happens because of a greater, the bigger picture of how we just redistribute resources really, you know, nationwide in in our respective communities based on people's tax brackets. Thanks for the answer on that. We're going to go to our last question. And what is one thing that you thought you knew, but later realized that you were wrong about? 
Oh, we. One thing that I thought I knew, but I later realized that I was wrong about. I thought I knew, I thought I had a, a pretty good knowledge about how the system worked as far as the healthcare systems, criminal justice system, you know, our political system. I was always very well versed in them and had a lot of knowledge on them. When I got involved in public health, I realized how much I didn't know, how much all of them kind of, maybe you want to use the word conspire, but how much they all kind of are entangled and affect so many different aspects of everybody's life. When I say public health is encompasses absolutely everything and is entrenched in everything, I mean it. Being able to work from this lens and from this position as a health educator has really allowed me to see how, you know, those three things specifically have really all played their part in making sure that we're not adequately meeting the needs of the different people that we work with. That has to be what I would answer how to go with. Wow, that's, that's a deep answer. Thank you so much for that answer. And thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Yeah, you know what? I really appreciate the opportunity. I hope I was able to, uh, to give you some good information. And I hope somebody was able to learn something from this today. I'm, I love what I do. I love the people I work with. And I really hope to just kind of spread the word about not just what I do, but public health in general and get more people involved. Because we, really we really need to be better stewards of each other and do better by one another. Well, thanks for the, again, thank you for the interview and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I'm glad that I was able to listen to this episode a few times as I edited it because I realized that during the interview when William was answering the question about having funding and resources, I totally missed his point about preparing people for the, what opportunities they would be provided. You know, when he was talking about the way that we fail to prepare people is similar to giving a car to a 13-year-old. The point really resonated me with me as I was editing because it highlights just how important it is to think about the systems of public health instead of just the symptoms and problems that people face and the challenges that we seek to fix. And I loved that throughout this interview, as William was talking about the ways that men can step up, the programs and interventions that he was talking about would improve the family's outcomes in a variety of biological ways through the mechanisms he listed. It wasn't just giving one little thing to a try to fix one other little thing, but he was trying to make an intervention that would address the root causes of the family's challenges. Additionally, the interventions that he chose addressed the causes of the problem of men not being invested in family care, looking at how the influence of family and the influence of peers might cause men to check out, and of course also our medical system as well in the examples that he listed. What did you think about William's thoughts? You can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health and let us know. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Thank you so much to William Moore for coming into the studio today. That's all we've got for this episode. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted and produced by Ian Bukta. Our guest today was William Moore. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health.